0: The organ through which we see truth is the intelligence. The organ through which we see God is love. Faith is the experience that the intelligence is enlightened by love.
1: Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight we begin Enlightened by Love, a series of five broadcasts by David Cayley on the thought of the French philosopher and mystic Simone Weil. Simone Weil lived between 1909 and 1943, her short life bracketed by the First and Second World Wars and shaped by the political and economic upheavals that came between. She registered the anguish of her time with exquisite sensitivity and felt called in the face of this suffering to radically rethink her collapsing civilization. In the 30s, she was active on the political left, involving herself in trade union politics, worker education, and the Spanish Civil War. Albert Camus called her essays of this period the most penetrating and prophetic contributions to Western social and political thought since Marx. Then in her last years, A mystical, spiritual perspective unexpectedly opened to her and she came to know the love of God as intimately, she says, as the smile of a friend.
0: The moment stands still. The whole of space is filled, even though sounds can be heard, with a dense silence, which is not an absence of sound, but an object of positive sensation. It is the secret word, the word of love, who holds us in his arms from the beginning.
1: Simone Weil's mysticism, taken together with her fiercely political commitment to justice, made her a singular figure, and her writings found a wide audience after the Second World War. The lucid originality of her thought, her ascetic life, and her early death completed the mystique that still surrounds her name. In this five-hour ideas series, David Cayley looks behind this mystique and discovers a philosophy whose pertinence has only increased in the years since she wrote. He begins tonight with a biographical sketch and devotes the rest of the series to her political and religious thought. One final note, The name Veil, in case you know her as a reader but are unfamiliar with the French pronunciation, is spelled W-E-I-L. Enlightened by Love, Part 1, by David Cayley. In August
2: of 1943, a 34-year-old French woman lay dying in a sanatorium in southern England. Some months earlier, a friend had found her unconscious on the floor of her room in London, where she had been living in exile and working for the liberation of France from German occupation. She was taken to hospital and diagnosed with severe tuberculosis. She ate very little and said she was unwilling to take more than the rations allowed to her compatriots in occupied France. The hospital doctor proposed surgery an operation then used to relieve the lungs, called a pneumothorax. But she refused and was transferred to the Grosvenor Sanatorium at Ashford in Kent. There, in a bright room with a view towards France, she died peacefully on August the 24th. Although she had not, in fact, refused all food and had been, at the end, more unable than unwilling to eat, the coroner issued a verdict of suicide. The deceased did kill and slay herself, he reported, in the antique formula of his trade, by refusing to eat whilst the balance of her mind was disturbed. The local papers carried stories of the French professor's curious sacrifice. Only a handful of friends attended Simone Weil's burial. The gravesite was marked only by a number, cast in relief on an iron shield. A pauper's grave, the local people said. For 15 years, it remained anonymous. Simone Weil died with a sense that her life had been a botched and a broken affair. She had begun with high hopes. You have the whole world before you, she told herself in a notebook she kept in her early twenties. Life for you ought to be more real, more full, and more joyful than it has ever been. But events during the 30s had slipped inexorably towards catastrophe, and her own efforts had been undermined by constant wearing headaches that left her unable to work and sometimes even to think. As the war went on, she felt a growing anguish at her inability to serve her country or her world in its agony. She still trusted the validity of her ideas as a writer, but she saw herself as an entirely inadequate vehicle for the inspiration that had somehow seized on her.
0: I cannot make any use of these thoughts that have settled in me. For I am an instrument already rotten and worn out. For others I do not exist at all, like the color of dead leaves or certain unnoticed insects. I can never read the story of Christ's having cursed the barren fig tree without trembling. I think that is a portrait of me. In the tree also, nature was powerless, and yet it was not excused.
2: Vey's feeling of barrenness, of having failed to yield the fruit it should have been hers to give, reflected her powerful and unrelenting sense of vocation. It also mirrored her sense of a world in acute need, a world in a state of advanced spiritual starvation.
0: In all the history now known, there has never been a period in which souls have been in such peril as they are today in every part of the globe. We are living in times that have no precedent Today it is not nearly enough to be a saint. We need the saintliness demanded by the present moment, a new saintliness, itself also without precedent. This new type of sanctity would be a fresh spring, an invention almost equivalent to a new revelation. This is the thing we have to ask for now, and we have to ask for it as a famished child asks for bread. The world needs saints who have genius.
2: Simone Weil did not consider herself such a saint, but after the Second World War had ended, it was exactly in this way that she came to be seen, as a saint with genius. With her mother and the friends who had saved her letters and manuscripts as midwives, collections of her writings began to appear in a steady stream. By the time publication was complete, 15 volumes of her writings had appeared in English. In France, Albert Camus recognized her as a kindred spirit and oversaw the publication of a number of her works. In England, T.S. Eliot introduced Vey to the reading public with the claim that she possessed, for him, a type of genius akin to that of the saints. In the United States, the literary critic Leslie Fiedler was one of her early champions calling her an exemplar of sanctity for our time, the outsider as saint. And in Canada, she was embraced by George Grant, who would go on to become one of the most widely read and respected political philosophers of his generation. Grant spoke to me about Vey, he says vile, in an interview recorded in 1985, just a few years before
3: his death. Many very splendid thinkers, aren't remarkably saintly people, you know, in one way or another, you know. But with Simon Weil, you come, you have to combine this staggeringly clear intellect with something that is quite beyond the intellect, namely sanctity. And I mean by a saint, a being who gives himself away. Now, in, when you talk about giving themselves away, there's sort of a low order of giving oneself away where, you know, people who are absolutely occupied by a particular vice have, in a way, given themselves away. But I mean giving themselves away in love. Simon Weil, to me, is the supreme teacher of the relation of love and intelligence. George Grant
2: discovered Vey's writings in the fifties and continued to meditate on them throughout his life. For others, interest in Vey proved to be more of a vogue, a vogue which had more or less run its course by the end of the sixties. During this period, a fascination with the extremes of Vey's personality sometimes got in the way of an appreciation of Vey's thought. One can see this tendency still at work, in the recent biography by Francine du Gray, which gave me the feeling that Gray was interested in Vey mainly as a case study in abnormal psychology. But generally, I would say, scholarly interest since the 70s has focused on getting to grips with Vey's thought. That will be my approach in this series, which will be largely devoted to an exploration of her ideas. But her life remains the matrix of her thought, and so I'll begin tonight with her story. Simone Adolphine Vey was born on February the 3rd, 1909 in Paris. Her parents were well-to-do middle-class Jews. As with many other assimilated Jews, Judaism played no part in their lives. In fact, her brother later told an interviewer that when he was a boy, someone had told him that he was Jewish and he simply hadn't known what the person meant. Their family life was happy. Bernard Vey Simone's father was a doctor in general practice. Her mother, Selma, devoted herself to their household and to the upbringing and education of their two children. Education was an important matter in the Vey household. André, who was the elder, showed early signs of genius in mathematics, and by the age of 12 could read Greek and solve advanced mathematical problems. He eventually became one of the most noted mathematicians of the 20th century credited with fundamental contributions to the field. André and Simone were close as children, and Simone's mother was unusual in her determination that her daughter should receive as good an education as her son. Nonetheless, Simone could not help comparing herself unfavorably to her brother.
0: At 14, I fell into one of those fits of bottomless despair that come with adolescence, and I seriously thought of dying because of the mediocrity of my natural faculties. The exceptional gifts of my brother, who had a childhood and youth comparable to those of Pascal, brought my own inferiority home to me. I did not mind having no visible successes, but what did grieve me was the idea of being excluded from that transcendent kingdom to which only the truly great have access and wherein truth abides. I preferred to die rather than to live without that truth. After months of inward darkness, I suddenly had the everlasting conviction that any human being, even though practically devoid of natural faculties, can penetrate to the kingdom of truth reserved for genius, if only he longs for truth and perpetually concentrates all his attention on its attainment. The conviction had come to me that when one hungers for bread, one does not receive stones.
2: This conviction, that a loving attention is always finally fruitful, would never leave Simone Vey. Having overcome her despair, she went on to a brilliant academic career herself. The teacher who exerted most influence on her, Emile Chartier, known by his pen name Alain, said she was... Superior and by a great margin to all others of her generation. In 1931, she graduated with a license to teach philosophy from the elite Ecole Normale, a member of only the second class into which women had ever been accepted, and the sole woman in her year. At the university, she was a rebel, an organizer, a constant goad to the political conscience of her classmates, and a thorn to the academic administration whose director satirized Wey's leftist views by nicknaming her the Red Virgin. As she had been from childhood, she was keenly sensitive to the sufferings of others, on one occasion breaking down in tears on learning of a famine in China. And this was neither perversity nor affectation, says Wey scholar Diogenes Allen, but simply her nature. It is a tremendous burden to have to care that profoundly, and to feel so incapable of dealing with it, you just can't do enough. And I think Ve was horrendously burdened by this. She was constantly seeking alleviation, both in thought, how can we understand, what can we do about it, her whole life, almost at times frantic, uh, unable to relax very much, it seems, from what I can pick up, difficult person to be with. And not because of perverseness, but a tremendous sensitivity. Wey's sympathy was universal. Any partiality, exclusiveness, or inequality provoked her. But she was particularly roused by the condition of the working class in France. Part of the reason was the central importance she gave to manual work. She believed that to really know the world, one had to experience it through physical labor and she tried from childhood on to escape the class privilege that exempted her from such labor. While she was at school, she spent a holiday in the country hoeing potatoes for many hours a day. And the summer after she left the École Normale, she traveled to Normandy with her parents in the hope of being taken on by a fisherman. At first, her request encountered only rejection. Surely this earnest, passionate, clumsy young woman would be a liability at sea. But at last, a fisherman called Marcel Le Carpentier accepted her. I decided to please Dr. Vey, her father, Le Carpentier later recalled, when I saw his daughter running along the beach like a crazy woman, her large skirts trailing in the sea. So I turned around and picked her up. Vey spent the summer on his boat, showed herself fearless in storms, and often lingered late on deck at night, writing, and sketching the constellations, in love with solitude and the sea. Despite warnings from the other fishermen that she was a communist and would bring trouble on him, Vey became to Le Carpentier and his family a friend, a teacher, and a business advisor. When they recalled her in later years for one of Vey's biographers, they remembered also an intimation of something strange and pure that had briefly touched their lives. In the fall of 1931, just as the Great Depression was overtaking France, Simone Weil began teaching philosophy to girls at the lycée in the rural town of Le Puy. Her mother accompanied her and tried to make her comfortable, but as soon as her mother returned to Paris, Weil established the ascetic style of life she preferred, working incessantly, eating and sleeping irregularly, and giving away much of her money, though always anonymously as she hated personal philanthropy. Books and tobacco were her only indulgences. In Paris, as a student, she had already become involved in worker education, and she continued this in Le Puy. Often, after school, she traveled three hours by train to the town of Saint-Étienne, taught a course to miners there, slept a few hours on a bench at a café, and returned to Le Puy in time for school the next day. She also threw herself into left-wing politics, taking part at one point in a strike of unemployed workers who had been set to quarrying stone at starvation wages by the municipality. Her participation created a scandal in the town. The mayor petitioned unsuccessfully for her dismissal, and the local press mocked her as a Jew, a woman, and, it was claimed, a communist. Vey's politics, in fact, were syndicalist, a movement that emphasized militant unionism and working-class solidarity rather than the advancement of a political party. It was centered in France on a monthly review called Proletarian Revolution, for which she frequently wrote. Vey believed that society is defined by its attitude to work. And she agreed passionately with Karl Marx's view that labor is alienated under capitalism. But she soon came to see Marxist ideology as muddled and the hope of revolution as vain. Communism appalled her. She was shocked during a visit to Germany at the way the Communist Party there seemed paralyzed in the face of Nazism, and she was equally distressed by what she learned of the situation in Stalin's Russia so, when a former student from Le Puy wrote to say how much Vey's teaching had radicalized her and her classmates, Vey felt obliged to send back this sober warning.
0: In no country are the working masses more miserable, more oppressed, more humiliated than in Russia. My information comes from people who have lived there for years, But one can also find proofs of barbarity and oppression in official communist sources if one reads them critically. My heart breaks to have to tell you these sad things, but I owe you the truth. The present society can only heap misfortunes and disappointments on those who refuse to adapt to oppression and lies. Realize this fully from now on we don't live in one of those periods when rebels are stimulated and supported by large currents of opinion. The rebel is morally and materially alone. Only those who are really strong, really pure, really courageous, really generous will be able to meet the challenge. Although one has the right to some illusions at sixteen, it is best that you should know the whole truth immediately particularly about Russia. I have been grudgingly forced to admit the sad reality. Affectionately yours, Simone <laughs>
2: At the age of 25, Simone Weil was disillusioned with revolutionary politics. Her denunciations of the Communist Party and of conditions in the Soviet Union had resulted in her being repeatedly abused and shouted down at trade union congresses. And in the fall of 1934, she took a new direction. I have decided, she wrote to a former pupil, to take a year's leave from teaching in order to make a little contact with the famous real life. The phrase was ironic, but at the same time, deeply felt. After several years of talk about the conditions of working class life, she wanted to experience industrial work for herself. So she took advantage of her acquaintance with the owner to get herself hired in a factory which made electrical equipment, and later worked in two other Paris manufacturing plants to which she applied on her own. The experience She wrote to a friend radically altered her sense of herself
0: in the factory the very basis of my self-respect was radically destroyed within two or three weeks by the daily experience of brutal constraint i was forced to recognize that the sense of personal dignity that i had thought internal to me actually depended entirely on external circumstances and don't imagine this provoked in me any rebellious reaction No, on the contrary, it produced the last thing I expected from myself, docility, the resigned docility of a beast of burden. It seemed to me that I was born to wait for and receive and carry out orders, that I had never done and never would do anything else. I am not proud of that confession. When I was kept away from work by illness, and became fully aware of the degradation into which I was falling. I swore to myself that I would go on enduring the life until the day when I was able to pull myself together in spite of it, and I kept my word. Slowly and painfully, in and through slavery, I reconquered the sense of my human dignity, a sense which relied this time upon nothing outside myself and was accompanied always by the knowledge that I possessed no right to anything, that any moment free from humiliation and suffering should be accepted as a favor, as merely a lucky chance. It has left an indelible bitterness in my heart, yet all the same I am glad to have
4: experienced it. She experienced uh, the drudgery of repetitive labor with bad ventilation, terrible noises, uh, demands from um, the foreman, and uh, really the meaninglessness of the gesture, not even knowing where the notions of the work plan began and what it essentially was the result of her labor. Because she knew in, in an abstract sense, but in a concrete sense, she didn't.
2: This is Claire Fisher, a Vey Scholar and professor at the Star King School for the Ministry in Berkeley, California.
4: Now, Marx had written about this but he had not experienced it firsthand. What also happened is that she had horrendous headaches. She burned her hands. She experienced lack of sociability. And out of this, she understood a very important question, which was one that she took into the factory with her. Why don't laborers revolt? Why don't they join up and develop a solidarity that will overwhelm the, the forces, as she used to call them, the violent forces that dominate. And she concluded that it was because uh, one was fatigued, that the job made people de-energized. Uh, this is a mild way of putting this, but uh, her conclusion essentially is you can't mount revolution on the basis of fatigued and dispirited human beings.
2: Simone Weil left factory work, having learned this lesson in her bones. She had also gained a new awareness of the fragility and evanescence of what we now call identity. She speaks of the degradation of her self-respect and says she was forced to recognize that the autonomy she had thought part of her nature was in fact only a happy accident, easily destroyed by what she calls affliction. In an instant, she had become a slave. And recognizing herself as a slave, she says, was a step in her journey towards Christianity.
0: After my year in the factory, before going back to teaching, I was taken by my parents to Portugal. That contact with affliction had killed my youth, and I was in a wretched condition physically. In this state, I left my parents and went alone to a little Portuguese village, which, Alas, was very wretched, too, entering it on the very day of the festival of its patron saint. I was alone. It was the evening, and there was a full moon over the sea. The wives of the fishermen were in procession, making a tour of all the ships, carrying candles, and singing what must certainly be very ancient hymns of a heart-rending sadness. Nothing can give any idea of it. I have never heard anything so poignant unless it were the song of the boatman of the Volga. There the conviction was suddenly borne in upon me that Christianity is preeminently the religion of slaves, that slaves cannot help belonging to it, and I among others.
2: Simone Weil's opening towards Christianity did not in any way diminish her political commitment. She continued to agitate against French imperialism. I have never been able to think of Indochina, she wrote, without a feeling of shame for my country. And when the Spanish Civil War broke out, she immediately felt impelled to enroll in the anarchist militia, even though she then considered herself a pacifist. I could not prevent myself, she said, from participating morally in that war. She had been in Spain only a few weeks when she was severely burned in an accident in camp and forced out of action. There were also times of happiness. Vey seems to have realized in her early 20s that her desire for perfection ruled out the compromise and dependency of sexual love. But she had a lively sense of humor, many friends, and a deep feeling for beauty both in nature and in art. In 1937, she was able to visit Italy for the first time, and her letters about her experiences there were rapturous. From the graceful landscapes around Assisi to the little puppet theater she discovered in the Piazza Beccaria in Milan, everything pleased her and showed her capacity for enjoyment. But the dominant note in Simone Weil's life was certainly suffering and a main reason for this was the headaches which wore her out and sometimes, as she says, annihilated her mental faculties altogether. They had begun in 1930 as the result of what was later diagnosed as probable viral sinusitis, and they continued to her death. She described their effect on her in a letter to a friend written in 1936.
0: I am not at the moment up to doing anything. I cannot do any work without a great deal of effort, without the anguish of the swimmer who wonders whether he will have the strength to reach the shore. Nonetheless, as I reflect, I become more and more aware of what I carry in my belly. And if I must speak to you with complete sincerity, I have the conviction that it contains the germ of great things, This contradiction invites despair. So, there is no way out. Or rather, this is the way out. Keep on pushing myself as long as it will be possible for me. And when the disproportion between the tasks that have to be accomplished and my ability to work will have become too great, then die and take away with me what I bear inside me, as undoubtedly has happened to many people over the centuries who were worth a great deal more than I. Every time that I go through a period of headaches, I ask myself whether the moment to die has not come. When they lessen, I throw myself into life with such ardour and passion that when they return, it is analogous to a death sentence.
2: Vey's headaches would grow worse in the last years of the 1930s, and she would be increasingly tormented by the discrepancy between her enfeebled condition and the tasks seemingly mandated by the great things within her. But Vey also recognized that her spiritual gifts were in some sense due to her headaches, which had forced her to refine her powers of concentration in order to accomplish anything at all. I have no alternative between creative attention and mental nullity, she once wrote, because my capacity for every other kind of attention is paralyzed. It was through this faculty of attention that Vey first entered the state of mystical rapture that graced her final years. It happened first at Solem, a Benedictine abbey which had been a leader in the modern revival of Gregorian plain chant a form of singing which they adored and would listen to for hours. Now 27 years old, she had gone there to attend services during the week of Easter in 1938.
0: I was suffering from splitting headaches. Each sound hurt me like a blow. By an extreme effort of concentration, I was able to rise above this wretched flesh, to leave it to suffer by itself, heaped up in a corner, and to find a pure and perfect joy in the unimaginable beauty of the chanting and the words. This experience enabled me, by analogy, to get a better understanding of the possibility of loving divine love in the midst of affliction In the course of these services, the thought of the passion of Christ entered my being once and for all. There was a young English Catholic there from whom I gained my first idea of the supernatural power of the sacraments because of the truly angelic radiance with which he seemed to be clothed after going to communion. Chance, for I always prefer saying chance rather than providence, made of him a messenger to me for he told me of the existence of those English poets of the 17th century who are named metaphysical. In reading them later on, I discovered a poem of George Herbert's called Love. I learned it by heart. Often at the culminating point of a violent headache, I make myself say it over, concentrating all my attention upon it and clinging with all my soul to the tenderness it enshrines. I used to think I was merely reciting it as a beautiful poem, but without my knowing it, the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that Christ himself came down and took possession of me.
2: This experience was a revelation for Vey, but not precisely a conversion. As she says in a long letter that has come to be known as her spiritual autobiography, Her conception of life had, in a sense, always been Christian, in its spirit of poverty, love of justice, and longing for purity. If she had not sought for God, she says, it was because she believed such a quest impossible and therefore likely to produce only self-serving fantasies of the divine. Now God, at last, had found her, and in a startling and unlooked-for way.
0: In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. I had vaguely heard tell of things of this kind, but I had never believed in them. Accounts of apparitions rather put me off, like the miracles in the Gospel. Moreover, In this sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love, like that which one can read in the smile of a beloved face. I had never read any mystical works, because I had never felt any call to read them. God in his mercy had prevented me, so that it should be evident to me that I had not invented this absolutely unexpected contact. Yet I still half refused, not my love, but my intelligence. For it seemed to me certain, and I still think so today, that one can never wrestle enough with God if one does so out of pure regard for the truth. Christ likes us to prefer truth to him because... Before being Christ, he is truth. If one turns aside from him to go toward the truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms.
3: In June of
1: 1940,
2: German armies occupied Paris. Simone Weil and her parents fled the city, eventually settling in Marseille. There, Weil threw herself into a new life. She became part of the resistance and was several times interrogated by the police, though never arrested. She befriended a group of interned Vietnamese workers, often giving them her ration coupons and agitating on their behalf with the authorities. And, as always, she wrote. While well, in Marseille, they tried to get a new post as a teacher, but found that as a Jew, she was now barred from teaching. So she sought work as a farm laborer, and in the late summer of 1941, was taken on as a grape harvester by a grower in the Rhone Valley. While she was there, she decided to write to the Commissioner of Jewish Affairs, so called, in the Vichy government, which then ruled southern france in collaboration with the germans this letter was not required of her but she felt called to write it she used the occasion to set down her views on the vichy government's regulations concerning jews and on her own relation to judaism
0: the government has proclaimed its desire that jews should go into production and preferably go to work on the land i do not consider myself a jew since I have never set foot in a synagogue and have been raised by free-thinking parents with no religious observances of any kind. I have no feeling of attraction for the Jewish religion and no attachment to Jewish tradition, having been nourished since my early childhood only on the Hellenic, Christian, and French tradition. Nevertheless, I have obeyed, and am at this moment working in the grape harvest, I consider the statute concerning the Jews as being unjust and absurd, for how can one believe that a university graduate in mathematics could harm children who study geometry by the mere fact that three of his grandparents attended a synagogue? But, in my particular case, I would like to express the sincere gratitude I feel toward the government for having removed me from the social category of intellectuals and given me the land, and with it all of nature.
2: This letter has attracted a lot of fire, along with a few other writings of the same tenor, because of Vey's disavowal of her Judaism. George Steiner, for example, who otherwise calls Vey the outstanding woman philosopher in the Western tradition, calls this letter nauseating, and Vey herself a classic case of Jewish self-loathing her defenders respond that she was perfectly sincere in her opinion that she was not a jew michael ross who is himself a jew who became a christian is working on a doctoral dissertation on ve at the catholic university of america she's a product
5: of the post-enlightenment jewish bourgeoisie and they basically rejected judaism as a religion in the Enlightenment sense that it was you know mysticism or superstition or what have you. And so she doesn't identify as Jewish. She wasn't running from sharing, she wasn't running from being mistreated as a Jew, which has sometimes been alleged. It's not as though she was fleeing her Judaism in order to protect and save her skin. That, that's not what Vey was about. I think basically there she genuinely and truly, because she came out of those bourgeois, Enlightenment Jewish circles, did not identify as a Jew.
2: Period. Vey's attitude, Michael Ross says, was quite common among assimilated European Jews. What bothers Vey's critics is the feeling that Vey was disowning her own people, as Steiner says, in The Midnight of the Gas Ovens. Opinion again divides. Steiner claims Wey had early but unmistakable evidence of the Holocaust. Michael Ross is sure she did not.
5: She couldn't possibly have known about what was going on in Germany. And to hold her accountable for that is to to hold half the world accountable. so, including half Judaism, Jews all over Europe didn't really know what the hell was going on. German Jews didn't know what was going on as it was happening. How was, how was she supposed to know? Uh, so I don't think that's fair.
2: What Simone Wey knew is not a question I can settle, except to say that I know of no textual evidence that she knew what was going on in Germany or Eastern Europe. In a larger sense, the issue of Simone Wey and Judaism seems to come down to this. Wey viewed Judaism as a religion, not a race, and thought that one could leave it as much as any other religion. After the war, when the full extent of the destruction of Europe's Jews became known, this view came to seem like a betrayal, or worse, even an endorsement of the Holocaust. But Vey, by then, was dead, and how she might have responded had she known what we now know is something no one will ever know. In the fall, after the grape harvest, they returned to Marseille. What she wanted above everything at this point was to contribute to the war effort, but she was unsure whether she ought to remain in France or try to get to London, where, since the fall of France, General de Gaulle's Free French had carried on the struggle in exile. Before the occupation of France she had tried to promote a plan to form a group of what she called frontline nurses. The idea, as she explained it, was to have in the forefront of battle a corps of nurses who would both offer first aid and show by their spirit of charity and self-sacrifice the superior goodness of the Allied cause. Her plan had come to nothing with the German victory, but she hoped to revive the idea with the Free French. She also wanted to ensure the safety of her parents, whom she knew would never leave France without her. And so, seeing no alternative, she sailed with her parents for New York in May of 1942, hoping to proceed from there to London. On arrival, she wrote to Maurice Schumann, an old classmate and friend who was in London with the Free French. She enclosed her frontline nurse's plan and asked for his help. Receiving no immediate encouragement, she wrote again, this time urging her suitability for a mission of sabotage in occupied France. And finally, she sent him this plea.
0: Any really useful work, not requiring technical expertise, but involving a high degree of hardship and danger, would suit me perfectly. Hardship and danger are essential because of my particular mentality. Luckily, it is not universal, because it would make all organized activities impossible. But as far as I am concerned, I cannot change it. I know this by experience. The suffering all over the world obsesses and overwhelms me to the point of annihilating all my faculties. And the only way I can revive them and release myself from the obsession is by getting for myself a large share of danger and hardship. I beseech you to get for me, if you can, the amount of hardship and danger which can save me from being wasted by sterile chagrin. It is unfortunate, but that is really how I am, and I can do nothing about it. It is something too essential in me to be modified, the more so because it is not, I am certain, a question of character only, but of vocation.
2: In September... Schumann replied, giving her some hope of employment in London and easing the desolation exile had inspired in her. In November, she sailed for England and took up a post with the Department of the Interior in de Gaulle's provisional government. It was a desk job, not what she had wanted, but she was given one compelling task. The time was early 1943. The outcome of the war was still very much in doubt. But the Free French and the resistance within France were thinking about how to govern France after its liberation from German rule. Faye was asked to contribute her thoughts on a new French constitution. She wrote feverishly on this and other subjects, and in little more than two months produced manuscripts amounting to some 800 printed pages. Her writing was urgent, lucid, and profound but not exactly what her superiors were looking for. They were thinking of how to establish a new French republic, not so very different from the one that had crumbled in 1940, while she was thinking of a reformation of her entire civilization. Fay felt increasingly that she had nothing left to live for. She had no hope of the mission she longed for in France. She looked too Jewish, they said, and her frontline nurse's plan was not taken seriously. But she is mad, de Gaulle supposedly said on hearing of it. In April, a friend found her lying unconscious on the floor of her rented room. She was taken to hospital and tuberculosis diagnosed. Her parents never knew she was ill. She put her regular address on the letters she continued to write to them and said nothing of her weakening condition. But she did reveal how completely overlooked she felt as in this letter in which she calls her mother meme, an endearment that was used within the family.
0: The only people able to tell the truth in this world are those whom common opinion considers to be fools. All others lie. Yet in Shakespeare's plays, the fools are not even listened to. They possess no titles or dignities, no claim on anyone's attention, And so everyone, including Shakespeare's readers and audiences, remains unaware that what they say is simply the truth, luminous, profound, and essential. Darling Meme, do you feel the affinity, the essential analogy between these fools and me? In spite of my academic successes and the eulogies of my intelligence, the eulogies of my intelligence are positively intended to evade the question is what she says true a thousand kisses darlings be happy i hug you both again and again simon
2: Not long after these words were written, Simone Weil died. The local coroner, as I said at the outset, ruled her death a suicide on the grounds that she had refused food. Her family and friends did not accept this diagnosis. They emphasized that she was ill, that she didn't want to eat more than people in France were receiving, and that accepting death is not the same thing as committing suicide. Perhaps her destiny had been reached, one friend said. The coroner's judgment was the first of many that would be applied to the life of this extraordinary woman. In a memoir of Simone Weil, published in France in 1952, her friend Gustave Thibault deplored the immense halo of commentaries and legends which he felt already obscured her memory. The crowd, he wrote, which is incapable of discerning the albatross's solitary flight across the sky, eagerly watches its picturesque movements when it lands and its giant wings prevent it from walking. His image of solitary flight signifies Vey's spiritual odyssey, the bird's ungainly waddling, her social misadventures. Perhaps the case is covered by the old story of the bishop who wanted to add to the litany of the saints the petition From living saints, good Lord, deliver us. Fay's mother, who spent 34 years trying to moderate her daughter's conduct, said something similar. Sir, she told the poet Jean Tortel, if you ever have a daughter, pray she isn't a saint. Perhaps, in the end, there's no such thing as a living saint, because the closer we get to the point at which such a being is actually inserted into society, the more we see the discomfiture created by someone who won't lie, won't compromise, won't fit in, and the more we are uncertain of the supposed saint's motives. This will never be settled. Some will diagnose Vey as an anorexic or as a self-loathing Jew. Others will light candles to Saint Simon, as one dissenter from this view put it to me. What matters most to me is what Thibault calls her solitary flight, the lonely intensity with which she tried to forge a language, a spirituality, and a mode of political existence adequate to the crisis of meaninglessness and disorientation, which she felt was shattering her civilization. In one of her last letters to her parents, she speaks of a deposit of pure gold, disregarded by others, that she thinks lies within her, and that ought to be handed on. In the programs that follow, I will try to unearth some of this gold.
1: On Ideas, you've listened to part one of Enlightened by Love, The Thought of Simon Vey. The series continues tomorrow night with a program on Vey's social and political thought. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Linda Shorten and Dave Field. Readings from Simone Vey's writings were by Kate Cayley. The incidental music was taken from the piano works of Eric Satie. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy.